Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Now, today I'm sitting down with Mark Adams, who's the chairman of the Digital Leadership Council uh, and happens to be in Melbourne today. So welcome, Mark. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Well, um, look, uh, we actually met in, of all places, Oslo. Yeah. Uh, what's that, about six years ago when yeah. we were much younger and yeah. uh, probably brighter eyed because <laughs> I think we're both feeling a bit a bit under the weather. Yes, that was a lot of fun. I, 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 we were in a, a little uh, hotel lobby bar and I think you were kind of doing your thing and I was doing mine and then we kind of started chatting a little bit and then I think five hours later we decided it was probably time to go to bed. <laughs> well yeah and and the thing is six years ago you were talking a lot about social media right and the role of social media and the impact social media was going to have because you it was an audience of marketers uh, Scandinavian or, or Nordic marketers that we were talking to and uh, I remember at the time that even then you were at the leading edge of where marketers were in relation to social media. How do you find it constantly being at that so you know early adopter thought you know thought leader? What's it like for you existing there? I think honestly, I think I was completely accidentally there. I, I just followed my passion, which was um, I'm from a tiny little place outside of London called Chelmsford in Essex. And an Essex boy. An Essex boy. You can go into the Aboriginal outback and they'll be like, an Essex boy. <laughs> um, and the thing about Essex is that every single young male in Essex wants to be a DJ. That is literally what we all aspire to. So if you're ever in Essex... To be, at the, at the, be the DJ at the nightclub at the yeah, South End. Exactly, yes. you know, South End. Amazing. Oh, wow. And, you know, literally, um, you know, if you were to have, you know, any any heart attack or something like that in Essex, you know, and, and, and everyone was like, is, are there any doctors? You know, it would just be like, no, sorry, I'm a DJ. I'm also a DJ. So basically... Um, I went to university, I was studying to be, I wanted to be a human rights lawyer because I had some kind of convictions around that. And uh, I was a bit bored of going to the same, you know, basic kind of student nights again and again and again. I was wondering where the kind of musically, where was that musical tribe that was into the music that I was into and I couldn't find them. So I went to a fairly notorious club in London called Fabric, which is quite mm. world famous for being quite severely musically minded. And I said, look, you know, would you be tempted to do any you know an event for students so that i can basically you know gather t together the tribe of people that love what music. you love exactly yeah. and that's it right that's that's so right, a deep a deep drive in all of us i think to find our tribe and and they basically said look we we will do this but you have to book talent you can't just have you and your friends from essex djing which was a big shame for us so they gave us this list and it was like the who's who of like electronic music talent mm. and we started trying to book them and we realized that there's not not a hope in hell of booking the Chemical Brothers or Daft Punk or The Prodigy or whoever it is. And so long story short, we realised we had to offer something other than money and we decided to start auditing their digital. So right. looking at across their digital channels. Their digital presence. Absolutely. Yeah. And we started to kind of, basically, I mean, L2 and Scott Galloway did this later with brands, but we were doing this with celebrities and talent and, and entertainment figures. And we were basically saying, you're third in your category 
and you, because of this, you don't do this, you don't have a YouTube presence, you don't do this. And we would just give them an audit and then come back to them and say, you know, we can, we can, we can sort this out, mm. but you, in return, will play this show for free. Fantastic. So you're, it was an exchange of, uh, of abilities, of uh, yeah. talent. You, know, you were using your talent of understanding the, uh, the social media network and the way it worked, and they were uh, exchanging that for putting on a show for you. Exactly. Um, going back a step, it's interesting, isn't it, how powerful music is at creating tribes. Oh. You know, and how you know, there's a there's whole thing about there's a certain point in people's life where they stop listening to new music. Mm. It becomes, That's you know, the music of your teenage and yeah. young adult years, you know, and so you become stuck in eighties, nineties. This is why radio formats have based around music of a period because that mm -hmm. becomes the music of your generation. I don't mean that as in the, the broader generation, but your group of peers yeah. will all be bonded by certain music. Except that's changing because music's fragmenting beyond mainstream music. Yes. And that there's all these sort of genres and subgenres that are existing all the time and emerging all the time. Yeah. That are creating sort of tribes within generations, isn't there? Absolutely. It's, it is, even in the music that I first and foremost was my first love was electronic music. You know, even within that genre now, you know, in Sydney this weekend, there were two different festivals representing very different ends of that spectrum. So you had Ultra Festival, which represents the kind of, you know, what the Americans call EDM, you know, electronic dance music, it's much more kind of, you know, pop, pop, based, you know, could even be uh, radio playable. Um, and then on the other side, the one that I ended up at, of course, being a being a, a bit more of a kind of cult uh, side of the tribe, um, which was much more techno, like Berlin, yep. Detroit. And, you know, it's very amazing that, and, you know, bringing it, you know, quickly to brands, you know, the biggest original sin that you can make in communication, whether you're a human being or brand, is to mistake or fail to see those distinctions in the spectrum. So I want to apply it to a, a different category apart from brand, and that's news <laughs> ah. and information because, you know, it wasn't that long ago um, that to be a news either broadcaster or a publisher, you needed huge amounts of money and in most countries, the largesse of government to be given a license to be a broadcaster or be a, uh, a publisher, and you became the voice of the news. You controlled information because you were given this right to actually be able to uh, participate in what's called the democratic process because media was mm. is seen as the fourth estate or the fourth pillar that holds everyone else accountable. But that's also changed, hasn't it? Because... Yeah. The internet, social media and the like, has made it that it's actually a low cost of entry for almost anyone to be able to go in and start contributing to the sort of news commentary of the day. Yeah. It's... How's that impacted the world? I mean, we have seen at the beginning, you know, being uh, there's a heady mix when you're a human rights lawyer who also is fascinated by digital and the power of networks. Mm. And I've always believed, you know, to, to your first question about how do you keep up? How do you stay on the bleeding edge of things? I honestly would say I don't. <laughs> well, you're surfing the edge of a tsunami. Absolutely. Any moment it's going to collapse on top Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, and, I, and I, I kind of think about all the trends that I could have jumped on. You know, anyone who, you know, invested in crypto uh, in the past few years will know what I'm talking about when I say that, you know, that, that there's, a, there's a certain uh, tragic 
this is the tragic hero's journey yeah. to put all your eggs in a basket on a you know and, and we see this all the time you know i've been there in the world of you know being a chief digital officer or chief innovation officer now for you know 17 years and every single year has been the year of some new trick or fad or gimmick or trend and one of the things that i'm always kind of harking back to my team at vice where i work day you know day in day out um is don't be obsessed by trends don't follow trends don't get in, don't get too excited by them because um uh, you know they will let you down they will break your heart you know and uh, you know it was whether it's vr you know i saw an article this morning forbes saying the year, 2020 the year of vr and i remember 2002 being the year of yeah. vr you know it's like <laughs> there's a lot of tombstones out there for like you know it was the segway it was the mini disc it was all these formats right well i know in advertising they kept talking about the year of mobile advertising <laughs> yeah and every year it was going to be the year of mobile advertising yeah and virtual reality i think augmented reality's got a better chance but we're getting yes. We're getting off the issue here. But, yeah, you know, I'm talking about the fact that, you know, you growing up down in Essex <laughs> in a time when newspapers, for instance, and London newspapers are famous and notorious mm. for having, you know, there was The Sun and News of the World and there was The Independent and The Times mm. and they'd all etched out a political positioning in society yeah. and probably political slash demographic positioning in society uh, with their readership. Okay. Yeah. But now in the and and they're still around. Largely, they're still some of them are still printing ink on paper, but most of them are deriving their revenue through uh, online subscriptions and advertising. And this is my interest in news mm. because such a large amount of news publishing is actually supported by advertising. Yeah. Right. Except that now there is you know like you mentioned yeah. Vice. There's, there is now news or information providers that are not going on demographics like political positioning or yeah. wealth, but on things like age, interest, you know, uh, geography. You know, there's all sorts of things that actually can appeal to people. It's fragmenting it in some ways, but it's also deepening the engagement, isn't it? Yes. And I think that is the, the elemental battle is do you want to go shallow and broad, i.e. demographics, or do you want to go deep and what would appear at first to be niche, but my argument would be actually isn't niche. So um, I think that the, if, if, you know, the, the thing that I would say is the biggest realisation in my whole time in, in the world of digital is that the internet is just an interconnected series of networks. And that's all it is. It's 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 always what we've always done, but now it's an accelerant of the internet has put it to the power of a billion. And so, you know, un, you know, identifying those networks is uh, is you know, advice. We 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 believe that's our first and foremost job because people will come and talk about culture, and we don't think that's a useful term because um, you know, demographics is 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 uh, not. We're not against demographics, but we think that it's the beginning of a journey. And when someone gives us a demographic, the first thing we do is dig into that and try and find the networks. Mm -hmm. So what we did when we launched Vice News was we said, what if we applied that same methodology to news? What if we stopped trying to, you know, target people according to political bias or, uh, you know, uh, age? And we started to say, what are the stories that are emerging in that network over there or that network over there that aren't being told? And, you know, originally, no one knows this, but Vice was actually called Voice. Ah. That was the original business. And they, they were, there was another company called Voice and they, sold, they, they sued Vice and we had to drop the O. But the idea was to give a voice to the networks 
that never get to speak. Interesting, because that's almost like a uh, unfortunate consequence led to a great benefit. <laughs> yes. Because you would have to say that voice is so almost prosaic yeah. in describing its purpose that, uh, but vice gives it an edge. You know, Absolutely, gives it gives it the ability to go beyond just oh, it's a voice for networks. To you know, there's a vice <laughs> that you can now indulge in. Yeah. There's an, a vice that you know may not be acceptable to your parents or your you know other people in society, but for you is absolutely legitimate. <laughs> and so you know, because I love I love brands <clears throat> and vice is a brand <clears throat> that deepen this engagement mm. by not just reflecting or playing back to people what they're thinking and feeling, but also give them permission to think and feel it. You know, it's not about being a mirror. It's actually validating what many people are thinking that allows them and gives them the confidence to then speak up about it and feel that they have you know, a legitimate right to be angry or upset or or happy or, you know, whatever about particular issues, isn't it? You nailed it. I, I gave a talk um, in Romania a few uh, months back and after I came off stage, lots of young people came over and they said, can we have a photo with you? And I said, trust me, I'm not someone worth having a photo with, you know? And they said, no, 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 you you work at Vice and, and, and we want a photo That's with cool. you. That's and, cool. And, and I said to them, just out of interest, why... Why, why do you want this? Why, 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 why do you like Vice so much? And they said, we are young um, students at the university here and we are LGBTQ+, right? We're a group of people who you know, all identify there. And um, we just wanted you to know that no one has ever made a documentary about what it's like to be young and gay in Romania. Yeah. And so that is what we call leading tribes so we think the first step is identify networks mm -hmm. figure out the ones where you think that we have the authenticity in our um, equity the deep truth in our, in our brand allows us to connect with the deep truth in that network and then strategically activate them with leadership see this is such a inspiring and powerful perception of what often gets reduced in marketing these days to, oh, we're targeting millennials. <laughs> you know, and it's like, do you actually understand even what that means? I yes. mean, aren't there millennials in their 30s? Yes. You know, and, you know, some of them are doing the traditional thing of getting married and having jobs, and yeah. then there's others that are doing, you know, <laughs> travelling and, and exploring the world. You yeah. know, you can't just, it's like talking about baby boomers. Yeah. You know, yeah. sure, there's lots of them. Yeah. But I was born in 1961, so I'm the tail end of the boomers right, wow. compared to someone that was born in 1950. We're as different as chalk and cheese. Absolutely. I, I always used to start... Hello, boomer. Uh, hello, boomer. I used to start a... Uh, and by the way, some of the boomers, technically, I've met, are more millennial than some of my friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's a mindset. Mm. And I'm constantly, you know, I dare say this, like you and I have known each other for a long time now. You're more of a millennial than <laughs> half my mates, at least, right? And um, and so and so one of the things. And by the way, you know, a lot of the best marketing people I meet are, are, are younger mindset than, mm. than than some of the some of the people who are younger than I that work in my team. And and one of the things um, I used to start presentations with a <laughs> with a picture, and it just sums it up perfectly. On the one hand, you've got Prince Charles, and on the other side, you've got Ozzy Osbourne, mm. both sixty-seven years old, both love dogs. Both have an income of this. Both live in the same city. Both live. It. So it's like, good luck. 
you yeah. know, good luck making something based Using on this targeting, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. demographics. So I, I would go as far as to say that, you know, you can imagine at Vice, you know, we, you know, we're not a small business now. We're, you know, we're a four billion dollar business, right? Mm. So everyone's like, and especially in markets like Australia, we're, we're we're just getting our hold. But, you know, we must be doing something, right? Mm. And I think our investors believe that we've stepped on something that's kind of the art and science of activating these networks. And if you think about it, the internet, the connection economy, rewards the network analysis and thinking. And then it's what is this? What is the strategy for activating and recruiting from those networks? Because it's all for nothing if you can't recruit, right? And it's all about, at the end of the day, it's about market share. So we want to grow and we want the partners and companies and brands that work with us to grow. And so we want constantly to be, you know, it's like Byron Sharp says, we want to be in the market all the time and we want to be targeting this unbelievably huge long tail of potential networks that you could potentially get market share from. And I always use the analogy of oranges. You know, if I want orange juice, I don't so much mind how many oranges I have to squeeze to get the orange juice, as long as each one gives me a bit of what yeah. I need. And so basically we see each tribe or each network as a potential squeeze to give us more market so, share. So here's the thing that's interesting for me is that, you know, rather than doing this dem demography of millennials, you're actually looking for, you call them tribes or networks, mm. but you're actually looking for groups yeah. of individuals. But you're not doing it on where they live or how much money they earn. You do it on the basis of the things that are interesting them, the things that they're engaged in, right? Yes. Which you know, anyone that uh, looks at the entertainment economy knows that it's always worked that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. By producing the content that people connect with, whether it's on entertainment, informational, educational, whatever, the deeper they're connected to that, the more of their mind space you've got. Yes. It's interesting that... You know, one of the frustrations with research is that so much of it is me asking you how you feel about different yeah. things. Whereas I see this as more uh, visceral because you're actually exploring a network and, mm. and listening and seeing what it is rather than asking them. Then you're almost uh, taking a scientific approach because you're then testing it yeah. by you know producing <clears throat> the content that seems to be the stuff that they're talking about and seeing how they engage with that, right? Absolutely. And that's about marketing with them, not at them. Mm. That's And that's essentially, I think you just nailed it there with the entertainment um model that that we are we see ourselves as an entertainment company and we actually think you know we have virtue now which is our creative agency you know has been winning a lot of pitches and just won ikea in all the main markets in europe and it's an amazing thing for, to, to, to have the ikea global agency of record you know it's, yeah. it's amazing and i think the way we've won it is by saying guys like you don't need partners that can connect you with um the classic way of thinking you need you need to transform to become an entertainment based company not not every company needs to but you know and i think what we try and do is map that discipline of the kind of how brands grow flywheel style thinking with and then build on that with a company that we think you know we we can say whatever you want about vice but we are digitally transformed you know we're way ahead like we've led the the, the pack in terms of digital transformation of media and brand and then add on top of that the fact that we're an entertainment company we're making stuff for netflix with vice studios we're making stuff for the cinema with pulse films we, we have the number one uh, we have more emmys for news than anyone else in news so it's like we're making stuff people pay to see and I think that's what brands actually kind of need as partners now. Um, but it's been really fun. I've got to say, I keep saying I'm going to leave every year and every year I stay. 
Well, look, you, you touched on that about uh, Vice being a digitally transformed company. Mm. Is it digitally transformed or was it born out of the digital era? Could Vice have happened? See, I don't think, Could, you know, Private right. Eye, for instance, oh, appeared in the 60s, it. right? Yeah. 60s or 50s? 60s, right? Uh, and it was a publication, but it could never expand to being a global yes. entity because the internet didn't exist. I mean, in some ways, has digital and the democratisation of information actually cre- created the opportunity for Vice just as it's created the opportunity for Breitbart? Yeah. I think that's a very, very insightful way of looking at it. I think that we realised that... W- the f- in the beginning, we thought it was our job to um, be the guardians of the chasm, we called it. So it was like, you know, you have that classic innovation curve of innovators, early adopters. Then you have that Graham Moore chasm yep. where you kind of, you know, something, you know, VR is a good example of things that take the run up and fall down the chasm. They never make it to the mainstream. Then you have the early majority, late majority laggards. And then, you know, my dad, my dear dad, who's, who just who just discovered Banksy last week, you know. And um, and so, you know, and, and, and so we all said if we're the guardians of that chasm, that's how we that's how we win because as things come from the left field i.e the innovation you know so if it's craft beer veganism etc they might start small but we're measuring the velocity growth rate of those tribes and those networks right so it's like the film alien it might it might be small at the beginning of the film but it's tearing your market share apart by the end Mm. right so we're saying hey heineken we, we we made the craft beer issue of um of uh, Vice in in 1997 and tried to get Heineken to get involved and they didn't want to get involved, right? We made the veganism issue in 2001 and tried to get Nestle to get involved. They didn't want to get involved, right? Now, all these companies are emanating their way out of those problems that we were saying 11 miles out to sea, we were saying there's a tsunami coming. And so we always tried to position that. And then what Disney, when Disney invested in us, they taught us the ultimate art, which we were talking about at lunch, storytelling. So we said, they taught us, how do you get beyond a network? How do you stop marketing with and start telling a story that's broad so that everyone's interested? So it could be a story about something niche like electronic music, but actually you make it universal. Mm. And that's by storytelling. Because no one in in Hollywood ever says, oh, you know, what's the addressable audience of prison, you know, prisoners who are going to watch the Shawshank Redemption? (laughs) Right? No one worries about that because... The Shawshank Redemption is a, is is about it's, prison. Yeah, but it's, it's a great story. It's a great story. Like I, yeah. I'm not a professional boxer, but I've seen Rocky. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so what we learned to do was not just document things because at the beginning it was very much for the tribe and it was very much documenting. Then we started to learn how to storytell and and explain to the rest of the world why that tribe does what it does. But isn't journalism good journalism? storytelling anyway, yeah. or is this a different type of storytelling? What you're talking about here, you know, because when you read a piece of, you know, journalistic writing, it actually gives you the story. It makes, because, you know, and, and I think, uh, you know, uh, my friend Sean Callahan would say yeah. that storytelling is a human trait because it's part of sense making. Uh-huh. The way we make sense of the world has traditionally been storytelling. The way we pass on knowledge and information was traditionally been storytelling. You know, it's actually quite a 
relatively modern thing for storytelling to be just purely for entertainment, mm. that most stories were built around passing on some uh, intrinsic truth or knowledge or understanding of the world. So, you know, like fairy tales were moral tales. And, Amazing. You know, things like that. So, yeah. you know, this is where the human condition around storytelling, I often laugh, you know, a agencies will talk about storytelling and then try and reduce it to a 30-second ad that sells. But, you know, <laughs> If you go to the core of storytelling, it's sense-making. Mm. Journalism is about sense-making. You know, I know the best journalists have this desire to, you know, unearth the truth, yes. you know, whatever that means, <clears throat> but, you know, a, a version of the truth through storytelling. Absolutely. The one thing I think that's always linked uh, everything that we do at Vice and, and everything I've done in my career is, is that being a truffle pig for the insights that make your hairs step up, you know, step up on your arm, right? It's like, you know, what's the, I, we always have this thing, you know, what's the test for an insight? Every single person around the table has got the hairs on their arms sticking right up. And like, that's when you go, wow. Isn't that fantastic? Because I wonder how many marketers listening to this have had a research report or a strategy <laughs> yeah. uh, document presented that gave <laughs> made their hairs on their arms stand up, you know, or the, on the back of their necks prickle with uh, excitement. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it happens because, you know, too often the process is actually reducing it down to yeah. something that's acceptable, whereas real insights are the things that, you know, often challenge you or excite you or, you know, get an emotional response. I, I will never forget being in the, uh, before this, I was the, I had the pleasure of being the, the chief digital officer of the biggest, one of the biggest talent agencies in the world, William Morris Endeavor. So basically my life was like, go and explain the internet to Björk in 2005, you know? And then it was like, go and explain the internet to Charlize Theron. I mean, it was great fun, right? Yeah. But anyway, one of them, my clients was Christopher Nolan and it was just an absolute pleasure to work the with director. him. director. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's just a genius. And I was in the room when the pitch happened for Warner Brothers for Interstellar. And the pitch was, there were th the big three, basically. There, there's space, which is environment. Mm -hmm but it's not as powerful as the next one up, which is time. And time is more powerful than space mm -hmm. because it exists even at the outer regions of the galaxy where there is no space anymore. We can see that redshift theory proves that time is still happening. I'm probably getting this wrong, but this was basically the, the And then there's one that's even more powerful than that. And we know this because it, it not only bends space, but it also bends time and that's gravity. Mm -hmm. So in terms of those big three, you've got space, then time, then gravity. But I want to tell the story of the fourth dimension of the universe the one that we are aware of ambiently. And if we really look at what we've been doing as a society, we've always had it flat right in front of our face, but we've never identified it as the fourth dimension. And that is love. No. Because you love people who are not oh. in the same space, not in the same time. And in the film, he goes into the middle of the black hole. Yeah. And what's in the middle of the black hole is he can move across time mm. and space. And all he wants is connection with his daughter. And so there's an example of hairs on your arms sticking straight up. And then it was, to be honest, then it was a, it was a formality to say that Matthew McConaughey is going to be in it and Hans Zimmer is going to do the score, mm. you know. And and that's the way we think advice, whether it's working with a brand or working for ourselves. It's like it's actually a formality who's going to direct things, and you're just finessing it. Like, but the power is in that insight. Yeah, and that's beautiful. I mean, I I am truly moved by that uh, because. Uh, I'm, you know, a student of science, yes, uh, an yes. understanding of space-time continuums, the impact of gravity on distorting the space-time continuum. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for suddenly you to, in that, telling me that story, sharing that with me, it, uh, it moved me because love exists in my life. Yeah. 
but it's never been part of science. Yes. Science is very, for me, a very logical process, you know, unmaking sense of the world, whereas love seems like something that, you know, can't be made sense of yes. because it's irrational. It's, you know, so to Beautiful. bring those two together. And I've actually seen that film and not made that connection. Yeah. It's actually um, at the very beginning of the film, when you watch it again, it rewards um, the very beginning of the film, you see the the camera pans from left to right across a bookshelf and the bookshelf you see dust falling so you see that's representing gravity mm -hmm. but you also see every book about love yes. yeah. so literally you you see the the great novels and not just books about romantic love books about people who sacrifice for any type of love friendship family love and 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 you literally see and it's like that's in front of us all the time so I'm just wondering if there's a, uh, a brand out there that's sitting there going, why don't we get these sorts of insights in our strategy <laughs> documents, you know? Because that, yeah. that is incredibly powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and honestly, the, the, the killer move for us, and I think when we launched Virtue, our creative agency, you know, the world does not need another creative agency, you know? That it just does not need it. <laughs> but we thought, you know, we really do think that coming from being an entertainment business that makes stuff in the cinema, makes, you know, we made three of the top 10 things on Netflix in Europe last year. Like we made the Fire Festival documentary, you know, like it's, it's unbelievable. And, and we thought maybe the world does need that creative agency. But the, the killer move was when we realized that investigative journalists at Vice News could go and get insight for brand boardrooms. Mm. That was the moment where everything changed. Because That's the game changer. That was the yeah. game changer. And literally I have seen CMOs open their mouths wide they've gone like this is the strongest insight we've ever seen so so i'm sitting here going it would be very difficult for almost any other media major media network to do this mm. because their base is broad and it's often driven by things like well we've got our celebrity section we've got our business section we've got our sports section they're not actually basing any of those on a network or tribes yeah. they're basing it on content they're very much content focused yes. and producing content that will fit into certain slots don't they absolutely our biggest insight and this is very very controversial but we say in vice the war of content is not the war it's not a war about content that was five years ago it's now a war of context mm. And if you can't understand that context, you know, I'm brought back to Patty Smith, who said the definition of the word, advice always gets called cool and edgy. And by that, I mean, I always turn that back on people and say, you know, because that really, what they mean by that is niche, but they don't understand that the, the internet rewards that type of thinking. Mm. That is the new, we're in the connection economy. Like we're not in David Ogilvy's era and I love him, but that era is over. And we're now in the connection economy and that rewards deep engagement with networks and by the way market share from a network like you know globally going after as lululemon came to us we became their agency of record as virtue and we went after one of the networks we went after was hip-hop now if you win 0.2 percent of the global hip-hop network that's market share that will change your stock price on wall street mm. that's not niche yeah you know what <laughs> so but that's what people are not seeing is yeah. you know because i know i i hear uh this conversation all the time you know marketers are trapped by in some ways uh, the the board and the C-suite want the big wins, but they don't understand that big wins actually comes from connecting into in a deep way into these networks yeah. because the scalability now, you know, I love the fact, in, in some ways I love the fact that the internet has made us a global village. Mm. 
but I worry that it's also commoditizing uh, individual cultures and languages and things. You know, that we're yes. becoming we're becoming sort of <laughs> yes. uh, amorphous yes. in, our, in our abilities. There is there's something you mentioned before, and I just wanted to pick up on it. And that was, you said, culture. Mm. Now, it's interesting because from my point of view, culture is one of those words that gets thrown around like community, oh, collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. There's these words that get have been used to at the point that they get almost bastardised and meaningless. Except that I think there's a, put another word to that, popular culture. Yes. Right? Is a really powerful thing because it becomes both at the time and historically a shared experience that we can all connect to yes. and refer to, right? But popular culture people often don't realise is created by people at the edge creating things Absolutely. that suddenly <laughs> get traction and move. They go across the chasm yes. and become mass. Absolutely. Right? This, this is, I mean, the, we've never talked about this before, but literally this is exactly the way we think. So I have an expression, I say this to brands all the time, you cannot give birth to an adult. Yes. Right? You can't buy, uh, you can't come up with an idea that doesn't exist in culture and buy the middle of the innovation curve, the, the, the majority bit, you know, where all the market share is, and, and buy an efficient CPM with reach and frequency and distinct memory structures and put it in culture. It doesn't work. No. There's, it's never in the history of work, the world worked and it will not work. You, you, you'd be better off trying to walk on the ceiling. But what you can do is identify the movements and the tribes and the networks that are moving from the left of the spectrum to the middle. And that's why we always said that we're the gatekeepers of the chasm. And you can work with partners, you know, and it's not necessarily just us, but who can understand that and have the intelligence around seeing how you can equitably, authentically help that community move across. It's, it's the idea of, you know, things start off, ideas are embryonic yes. and then they're born and then they're nurtured to become teenagers and then they move into being adulthood. There, there's also another saying which is, you know, jumping on the bandwagon. Right. But uh, I think increasingly we live in a world that by the time you've identified it's a bandwagon, it's too late to <laughs> jump on. Like my dad realising that Banksy's going to be big, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You might uh, you might get home and he's bought you one. Yeah. Probably the one that went through the shredder. Yeah, that one, yeah. <laughs> Here, son, here's a box of shredded uh, painting, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that's that's where, you know, I think the irony is, you know, what, what used to be safe is dangerous now. Mm. And the most dangerous thing you can possibly do is is, is build a, a, a set of partners or, 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 or a general consensus that ideas have to have a certain amount of mass before they're worth investing in. And I'm a big believer in that if you could buy the, if there was Bloomberg terminal for investing in stocks and shares, I would say that the economics of 101 economics would be buy cheap and sell high. Mm. So I would wanna buy an idea when its velocity growth rate showed me that it was gonna be huge in 18 months, but right now I could contribute but massively see, to it. But this is the whole thing about best practice. You Absolutely. know, best practice is not best practice. Best practice is what everyone's doing. Yeah. You know, because the first thing people ask when you talk about best practice is, well, who else is doing it? Yeah. It's not about looking at velocity. It's you want the proven track record because we're risk adverse. As human beings, we are risk adverse. So we're not going to back something early because it might fail. But then mm. big corporations are happy to set up head of innovation and innovation <laughs> chiefs and yeah. innovation hubs. <laughs> But they don't want them to take any risk. Yeah. You know? In fact, innovation 
is not about setting it up within the organisation. Innovation can often be having a mindset to look for where is it occurring anywhere, within your organisation, external, and start nurturing the things that have got momentum. Absolutely. You know? It's Absolutely. like um, De Bono talks about uh, East thinking and Western thinking. Ah. Now, Western thinking is you create an idea and it's like a rock that you put on the table and then everyone else gets their rock and they bang it to see if they can break it because if they break it, it's not a good idea. Aye. Whereas Eastern thinking is like drops of water and everyone adds their drops of water so that it goes from you know, a pool of water to a lake to a river to Aye. an ocean Why? by adding to the idea it and making it stronger and more powerful. Wow. So it's the, you know, I think uh, a lot of organizations, because of risk, are trapped in a Western mentality about how to test ideas. Yeah. You know, can I, if I can break it, then it can't possibly be a good idea. Yeah. Rather than taking an Eastern approach, which is to nurture and to add to and make it stronger. I love that. And, and that, I think when I talk about the idea of marketing with people, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that no creative director, and I, and I say this as someone who's tried to be one, you know, no creative director, even the best, is going to come up with ideas that the tribe themselves is going to come up with anything better than, than the tribe themselves are already doing. Like that tribe is, is, is a living embryonic organism. And I think, you know, to come back to the biological metaphor, you know, down to the point where I literally now we're starting to use the seven living, so the things that tell whether something's alive, movement, respiration, sensitivity, nutrition, excretion, reproduction, growth, we can tell whether a tribe is a real tribe because it lives by those seven biological principles. Mm -hmm. Like it will extract, it will excrete members that don't adhere to its um, rules and, and ideas. It has respiration, i.e. content travels around it. And so what you realize is the difference, the biggest difference, I, I, I beg any marketing person to just take this one thing from this, the biggest difference in the history of our lifetime is networks create network effects and businesses that are romping through the market share of incumbents are doing so because they're creating better and more uh, a powerful network effects than the companies they're disrupting and if you're not identifying networks i don't care if you've got digital in your title or innovation in your title if you don't think about networks every day in my view you're not digital or you're missing the boat exactly uh, Mark Adams, this has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> love you. I love I love catching up with you. Uh, we could talk for hours, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Yeah. I do have one question for you. I'm sure uh, anyone listening to this is uh, wants me to ask this question, and that is, so what's the next big thing, Mark? <laughs> mm.